Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Eurospeak podcast. I'm your host, BJ Anverga. On today's episode, we're sharpening our hidden blades and preparing to take some leaps of faith as we explore the fictional universe of the Assassin's Creed video game franchise. The series is published by Ubisoft and depicts a centuries-old struggle between the Assassins, who fight for peace and free will, and their adversaries, the Templars, whose machinations hope to bring about order and control. The game franchise can be described as a combination of historical fiction and science fiction. I don't think I'll be saying a lot more for fear of spoiling the story. In 2012, it was described as the standout series of the seventh generation of consoles, and its lifetime revenue as of 2016 is an estimated $4 billion, or since this is the Eurospeak podcast, 3.4 billion euros. It has been praised for its ambitious game design, visuals, and narratives, but criticized for its technical issues. At the time of recording, there have been 22 games released in the franchise, with 12 of them being classified as major releases. The most recent one is Assassin's Creed Valhalla, released in 2020. Joining me on today's episode is Nico, also known as Grand Pugilist in game streaming circles. He's an Xbox ambassador, and you'll find his streaming content on YouTube and Facebook. Welcome to the show, Nico. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. I just thought I'd also mention that Nico isn't just joining me because of his expertise in video games. He's also a specialist in European affairs, having completed a graduate degree in European studies. I think having both those things going for you makes you the perfect guest for today's episode. So thank you so much for agreeing to participate, Nico. Yes, of course. And thank you so much for those kind words. If you remember, one of my inspirations to pursue European studies was actually played in part by Assassin's Creed and my early travels to Europe, particularly my first European city, which was Venice. So I just had to see what other cool stuff Europe had to offer. Awesome, awesome. That's, that's really cool. And I do remember that. The initial inspiration to go into European studies was the Assassin's Creed franchise. Yeah. So it's really cool that you're, that you're here talking about it now. It's like a full circle. <laughs> Such a fanboy. <laughs> awesome. Same here. So uh, let's continue, shall we? So I don't know about you, but I have to say that the stories which feature actual historical figures are one of the elements that really attracted me to the game. Assassin's Creed uses them as the protagonist's allies or as villains in the plot. Their depictions in the game are not exactly historically accurate, which is fine for historical fiction, but I thought it might also be nice to see whether or not they would actually be considered evil by historical fact. On today's episode, we will be directing our eagle vision at some of the historical figures that have been portrayed as villains in the series, and we will assess whether or not they were actually as evil as they were portrayed to be in the game, and we will provide our own assessment about whether or not they deserve to be targets of assassination. In preparation for today's episode, Nico and I agreed on a list of villains from the Assassin's Creed series that we would do our own independent research on. Our goal was to find information about two things. First, what had they done in their lifetimes that makes them a suitable target of assassination? And second, factors that may redeem them, if any. On this show, we will go through our list of villains and discuss the information we found and make our own assessment of whether or not they actually deserve to be assassinated in the video games. Shall we start, Nico? All right, let's put them in the hot seat. <laughs> 
Awesome. All right, so let's begin with the first historical figure in our Assassin's Creed hit list. We've got François-Thomas Germain, using my French there, Templar Grandmaster and main antagonist in Assassin's Creed Unity, which was set in France during the French Revolution. Based on my research, François-Thomas Germain was a French craftsman who was described as the greatest silversmith of his generation. His creations were actually aesthetically beautiful, and he managed to give silver the appearance of mushrooms, feathers, and fur, to name a few. Today, his works are exhibited in Russia, Portugal, and the United States, because they were smuggled out of France during the revolution. Now, I know we're supposed to talk about how evil these people are, but I can't seem to find any information on it. I was hoping to find evidence that he overworked people in his silversmithing studio, but I couldn't even find that. What about you, Nico? Uh, yes, Zaman was indeed a silversmith and journeyman, or even a master craftsman to that end. But no, I don't think there is a concrete evidence that he overworked his laborers, nor any shady dealings that transpired in his workshops. However, the reason I gather as to why Ubisoft chose this guy as the main villain might be more subtle than we'd like to think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francois was with the guild, mm-hmm. and therefore part of 17th to early 18th century merchant class in Paris. Remember that Assassin's Creed Unity took place during the French Revolution, when the monarchy of King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette was about to sunset. And upon the successive beheading of both rulers, this was precisely the epochal pivot point, where the middle class, or bourgeoisie, took over. Right. Uh, it's actually quite ironic, uh, well, based from the game, that Francois made household ornaments for royalty, like Louis XV, the previous ruler, and even baby rattles or other toys for the royal children. No way! I didn't yes. know that. <laughs> so, so, silver baby rattles. That's, yes. that's kind of intense. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and... I think it's also important to note that, as depicted in the game, one of Francois's supposed co-conspirator in the Templar Order was Maximilien de Robespierre. Mm-hmm. Despite Robespierre's standing as a figurehead of the bourgeoisie's revenge against the monarchy, his role in the new regime eventually precipitated in the Reign of Terror, which was unfortunately as troublesome and even more problematic than the Anishan regime of the monarchical rule. But going back to Germain himself, there is no hard evidence that he was a bad guy, to put it loosely. At best, he represented the middle class and the rights of capitalism at the expense of the long-running monarchy. Yeah, so with regard to François-Thomas Germain, uh, historical figure number one on the Eurospeak hit list, uh, what is the verdict? You're right. Assassinate? No? All right, so this guy, apparently he might not be such a bad apple after all. He's your average Joe, if you ask me, with his work as a silversmith and a penchant for even excelling in his work. You can't blame the man, even though he might have participated in unions or other similar social movements, which were de rigueur at that time. At that time, yeah, true. Not guilty. Not guilty, (laughs) all right. Plus the fact that he made nice things for babies uh, right. <laughs> probably might help his case as well <laughs> uh-huh. all right so not not guilty not a bad guy 
All right. Yeah. Let's try the next person. So next up on our list is Robert de Sable, another French person. So sorry about that, Nico. <laughs> Who we met in the first Assassin's Creed game. Although now that I think about it, he's British, right? So I can call him Robert. Robert de Sable. The first Assassin's Creed game was set during the time of the Third Crusade. He's introduced as the Grand Master of the Knights Templar and one of the officers in the army of King Richard I of England who initiated the crusade to recapture Jerusalem. Now, I suppose, Nico, do you want to go first on this one? What information have you uncovered about the real Robert de Sable that shows that he's evil enough to be on our hit list or that he's actually a nice guy and was unfairly assassinated in the video game? Aha, uh-huh, right. So let's see. Well, the first thing we have to remember about Robert, as you say, is that he is a Tumblr Grandmaster. Actually, uh, the 11th of that line. Ooh. And therefore, he is de facto commander of the Crusading Army next to King Richard the Lionheart. Like any military officer, although of noble birth in Anjou, France, he climbed the ranks and was even influential enough to land the highest position in the Templar Order. Mm. Based on this account, there is not enough proof that Robert bore an ill intent or any malevolent motivation toward establishing a new world order as depicted by the game. Right. At the very least, however, uh, we can pin him for guilt by association with the Crusader army, which was basically a call by Pope Urban II to thwart non-believers or infidels. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the march to reclaim the Holy Land by the Third Crusade put the pressure on all military and holy men. Right. So we could see that between King Richard and Pope Urban's call to Deus Volt, mm-hmm. Robert was caught between a rock and a hard place. I suppose this was felt especially as they reclaimed Akla from the Saracens, where losses on both sides were dire. True. <laughs> so, uh, in other words, you're saying that he basically got peer pressured into into going. And, right. And if anyone yeah. deserves to be on that list, we got to put Richard and the Pope up there first. <laughs> well, the sanction did come from King Richard and the holy and official sanction came from Pope Urban II. So, that's right, yeah, that's right. I guess so. Nice. Well, so I have the same information as you, although your information seems a lot more in-depth than mine. Robert <laughs> the Fourth of Sable, uh, to use his proper name, was indeed Grandmaster of the Knights Templar. Uh, he's actually one of the few characters in the series that's a real Templar Grandmaster. He also participated in the Third Crusade alongside King Richard I, Lionheart, as you referred to him. He was part of some pretty gruesome conflicts, though there's no evidence that he was gruesome himself. He didn't actually strike me as the evil type. And like when the Crusading army left England in 1190, they were headed for Lisbon, today the capital of Portugal. And on the way there, the fleet encountered a storm which scattered the ships and resulted in each of the boats or the vessels arriving in Lisbon at different times. And some of the men in the ships that arrived ahead of Robert had actually started to run amok and cause chaos in Lisbon. And when he finally arrived, he was the person that swore an oath to Sancho I, the king of Portugal at that time, that he would control the crusaders while they were in Portuguese territory. So I don't know, you know, he he swore an oath, he got his men under control. He was the go-to person to take control over the army. Doesn't really sound like the behavior of an evil person. I don't know. What do you think, Nico? 
yeah, I agree actually. So not so evil after all. Um, yeah. Although I would lend some credence to the accounts that the Crusades have sometimes gone rogue. Yeah. And turned into looting sprees like the ransack of Jerusalem and other locations along the path to the east. It actually got worse by the time of the Children's Crusade. Oh yeah. Uh, yes, that's that a hard after, yeah, after the death of <laughs> Robert. Yeah. So that was when the youth were also emboldened to join, but ended in a failed project of sorts. So most crusader work in the Holy Land was actually neutral, where soldiers just had to protect pilgrims along the path to its holy sites. And with Robert being commander, though, he had to bear the brunt of the consequences of war. Yeah, he, he just happened to be there at the time of an actual war, right. is what you're saying. Uh, a victim of circumstance, perhaps. <laughs> Can we go back to Pope Urban and then King Richard? <laughs> so, Pointing uh, fingers now. <laughs> I know. So although I have a feeling what the outcome is going to be, historical figure number two, I just got to ask officially in the Eurospeak Assassin's Creed hit list, deserve mm-hmm. to be assassinated or no? Okay, so again, for Assassin's Creed fans, according to the game, Robert, along with King Richard and his army, were met by assassin Altair in the the battlefront of Arsuf. So it was more a trial by combat than assassination, (laughs) since King Richard apparently let God decide who was telling the truth (laughs) between Robert and Altair. Right, right. But that was the game's story. Anyway, so let's see. Robert de Sable, guilt by association in the crusading army, collateral damage in reclaiming Aqua from Saladin's army, and spilt blood in the Battle of Arsu. Yes, a little, but I wouldn't want to be the one to condemn the guy, given the circumstances of war. I mean, get, you get what I mean. Yes, and plus the fact that it is a war, he could have just died from right. any number of things that would have killed you in, in a medieval right, war. Right, right. <laughs> he, he was just lucky to survive, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I guess the answer for, from both of us is a no uh, on the assassination mm-hmm. and he could have died from many other things anyway alright <laughs> cool so let's move along person number three now I'm not a Spanish speaker but this is Laureano de Torres y Ayala Grandmaster of the West Indies Rite of the Templar Order from Assassin's Creed Black Flag which was set around the 17th to 18th centuries the end of the golden age of piracy, the time of Blackbeard and his friends, if you can call them his friends. Um, (laughs) In the game, Laureano de Torres y Ayala uses his governorship of Cuba in order to advance his Templar interests. So maybe I can share the research that I have on this guy. So he was actually one of your typical Spanish colonial officials. He was royal governor of La Florida, or Florida today, Spanish Florida between 1693 and 1699. He was royal governor of Cuba between 1708 and 1711, and again from 1713 and 1716. Incidentally, based on my research, his wife was Cuban, uh, a Cuban native rather. Under his administration, the fortresses of Castillo de San Marcos and San Carlos de Austria were completed in Florida. And while he was governor of Cuba, he oversaw the construction of a hospital for lepers and was really, really involved with the tobacco industry. Now, I don't know what you think about this, Nico, but this guy seems like a pretty typical colonial official, apart from the fact that he probably contributed to the growth of the 
tobacco industry that would eventually kill people with lung disease and cancer. Oh, no. But <laughs> I don't think that was part of the the Templar master plan. What do you think? <laughs> well, yes, um, that's actually the thing about these targets in Assassin's Creed. Their motivations are quite shrouded from us, you know, since we can only work on what we're given by written history, right? Yeah. But the clincher here is that the 17th to 18th century West Indies actually saw a gross amount of slave labor mm, towards yes. East tobacco farms and plantations. No doubt, De Torres has intentionally or unintentionally made use of the same means to grow the agricultural sector in the Caribbean. And about the hospital for lepers and fortification of Florida against other European powers such as the Brits, Dutch, and French. I mean, these developments might as well have been funded through the blood, sweat, and tears of the slaves. But then again, as you rightly said, the Torres might not have had all of these as part of the master plan, and simply more as a means to an end. I mean, he was, after all, a soldier who once served in the Spanish War of Succession. So, falling orders and a heart of iron, a heart of steel. And if I, if I remember correctly, he got his position right after the war, right? He, he started becoming a colonial yes. official after that war. Yes, that's right, that's right. So yeah, so, yeah, after all, being governor of Cuba and more importantly, part of the new world, one had to be resourceful, right, and flexible. <laughs> but that never justifies the use of slaves. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've had first-hand experience of this as Filipinos when we were colonized. True. As well as the the same schemes of tobacco monopoly being used. Mm -hmm. That is true. That is true. Although this doesn't seem to depart too far from what I was saying a while ago. He seems like a typical colonial official. I don't know. What do you think, Nico? Okay. Trivia time again. Okay, sure. Go for <laughs> it. Well, in the game, the assassination of the Torres actually took place in Long Bay, Jamaica. Ah. And I think Laureana de Torres' case is quite similar to the previous one. Uh, with Robert, in that it's another case of guilt by association. I'm not saying that he should have rebelled against the use of slaves across the West Indies or denounced the colonization of new land. Well, maybe he should have. Yeah, maybe he but, should have. But... <laughs> but only as a value judgment. Yeah. Right? Yeah. However, considering the context and lack of known motive, the guy wasn't a murderer as far as the accounts go. Right. 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 So, I guess... What he would have deserved was a slave uprising, oh. <laughs> rather than an assassination. That maybe that's that that would have been the uh, the historical irony we want, but that's not going to fit into the game. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, some somewhere. I mean, not not the best guy, not the worst guy either. Yeah. yeah. So may maybe a, a slave revolt where he has a 50-50 chance of surviving. Yeah. That, that sort I, of thing. I think Kenway can fit that into a side quest or something. <laughs> they, they, should, right. they should make a, a bonus DLC of that. <laughs> right, Black flag right. slave revolt. <laughs> nice. Alright, let's go to the next one. So, our next historical figure and villain in the Assassin's Creed franchise is Cesare Borgia, condottiero or military leader nobleman and politician, also one of the illegitimate sons of Rodrigo Borgia, also known as Pope Alexander VI. He had the title of Grand Master of the Italian Templars, which he obtained after murdering his father. He is one of the main antagonists in Assassin's Creed II, 
What have you found on this guy, Nico? I think you should go first. <laughs> right. So Cesare, very interesting guy. Now this was a very power-hungry person, <laughs> like his dad. You know, if the accounts are to be believed. Um, but being the son, Cesare had the perks. Okay. So Cesare Borgia rose through the ranks from Bishop of Pamplona, Archbishop of Valencia, and later on, in parallel with his father's rise to the papacy in 1492, Cesare also became a cardinal. So let's chop that into bits first. I mean, bishop in 1491, archbishop in 1492, and cardinal in 1493. So that was very quick. I mean, it's, it was too swift even for, for uh, yeah, for a man like him. And such was the ecclesiastical life of being second-born to Rodrigo's. And this is actually in contrast to the more secular position of the eldest stepbrother of Cesare, who is Pedro Luis. And Pedro Luis was Duke of Gandia. That was, however, minuscule compared to the latter of Cesare's exploits. Cesare's previous positions were ecclesiastical. He took a little detour of sorts into more politico-military endeavors, starting with his marriage to Charlotte de Albre, sister of the King of Navarre in France, and with King Louis XII bestowing him the title of Duke of Valentinois, or more popularly, Il Valentino. Mm. So this basically cemented their alliance with France and gained additional French troops. So if the accounts of court intrigue with Rodrigo and Cesare are to be believed, mm-hmm. Cesare had his little brother named Juan killed. Yeah. For the yeah. title of Duke of Gandia and as commander of the papal army, this is precisely where Cesare's political military career starts. And actually, Cesare's background in finishing a degree in civil law helped him keep afloat in this new calling of sorts. I mean, as you mentioned, that he is a condottiero. Cesare sought to expand their family's reach in expanding the papal states, for instance. So he conquered the cities of Romagna and the Marches. So we have Forli, Urbino, and Senigallia, just to name a few. So for these politico-military exploits, Cesare was actually the poster boy and inspiration of Niccolo Machiavelli for the prince. Right, right. <laughs> yes. Also in Assassin's Creed, right? Yes. <laughs> Very true. He was there. He was there. Not as a bad guy, but he was there. Yes, he was actually quite neutral, more of a cameo appearance or yeah. of some sort. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. Go, go on. You were saying he was the poster boy for Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince. Well, that was based on his conquests, expansionary tactics, and the use of papal money in order to fund the troops in the expansionary schemes of Cesare and Rodrigo even. Right, right. True. Well, based on my own research, I have found nothing to contradict what you just said. Although I suppose I could add that he's also rumored to, I mean, these are all rumors, right? He's yes. also rumored <laughs> to have had incestuous relations with his half-sister, or I don't know if it's his, his right. sister, <laughs> Lucrezia, who is also in the game, by the way. Yes, uh, <laughs> And of course, as you mentioned, the campaign of slaughter and conquest in Northern Italy to make a right. kingdom for himself. Now, these all sound pretty bad, what you said, what I said, but historians have actually expressed doubts on the veracity of these, I'm going to say rumors, but 
since right. it's historical accounts than these historical accounts. Uh, contemporary sources detested the Borgias after all. They were non-Italians who had gained prominence in Italy. They came from Spain and they took positions of power that were previously only held by Italians. Of course, people would write about them negatively. And assuming these rumors are accurate though, so let's assume that these rumors are accurate. What do you think, Nico? Deserve to be assassinated or no? Okay, so before we execute or not execute <laughs> Cesare, trivia uh-huh. again in the game, Cesare was actually such an ass. <laughs> he was such an ass that you had to hate his guts. Very difficult boss fight too, by the way. If I yeah. remember correctly, very difficult yeah. assassination. <laughs> I know, I know. I had to retry it a couple of times. He actually had to hate his guts and what he was capable of doing all for power. And this is real this time. He died in 1507 near Vienna, Spain. It's also mentioned in the game, which was a real event, you know. But in terms of being assassinated by Etsy Auditore, we'll just leave that to more imaginative minds. I, mean, I do, however, concur with you that some of these accounts may in fact have been hyperinflated by virtue of them being non-Italians. Uh, but still, the sheer tenacity of Cesare and the will to do whatever it takes all in the name of power. And I mean, his vindictiveness when he murdered Alfonso of Aragon, the second husband of his sister Lucrezia, uh, he was clearly a fascist, especially in his conquests. And it's something to think about. So I would say yes. Mm-hmm. But then again, there are worse historical figures in Renaissance Italy. True, true. Right? But he does yeah. sound like the type of person, like one of those archetypes of people that you just want to put on a hit list. Yes, actually. <laughs> if, if we are to if we are to believe everything that's that's been said about him, he he is one of those archetypes. Yes, if we are to believe the historical <laughs> accounts, right? Yes. Well, we, yes, and I suppose we have nothing else to go on, so we we, right, we should probably right. go with that. Well, we've, uh, <laughs> since we've talked about Cesare, we might as well talk about his father too, Rodrigo Borgia, the Pope, Alexander okay, VI. Here yeah, go. here we go. He was particularly memorable to me because I remember having to replay that boss fight over and over again. Uh, <laughs> so much frustration on, on this one person. And I, yeah. I, if, if I did not think that he was worthy of being assassinated then, after playing against him, I don't even know how many times i i certainly felt that he deserved to be assassinated <laughs> i mean he was tough for an old man yeah. <laughs> i'll give him that he was really tough for an old man so but that was the video game version what about the historical version we met him in assassin's creed 2 just like we met his son cesare and just like the historical figure he had the title of pope but not like the historical figure he was not really the Grand Master of the Italian Rite of the Templar Order, though he was in the game. Uh, and knowing you, Nico, mm-hmm. I'm sure you have a lot to say about Rodrigo Borgia. Yes, quite. <laughs> <laughs> well, if the accounts are to be believed, again, Rodrigo Borgia, or Pope Alexander VI, was a sacrilegious man, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> like any man of the cloth, you know, he started as a cardinal and well, by unpopular vote, was elected Pope in the name of Alexander VI. Um, So his papacy was ridden with intrigue and scandal. I mean, again, I could point to the fact that perhaps some of the accounts may be overinflated due to the Borgia's Spanish heritage, 
I mean, both the Spaniards and Italians are proud nations, <laughs> familial and clannish to that end. You know, it, it's no surprise, therefore, that the Italians, or more specifically, the Romans, preferred an Italian pope on the throne. You know, hence the possibility of fake news <laughs> against the Borgias. <laughs> right? Apparently but, it was there already. <laughs> yeah. But with the accounts on lavish parties and extravagance, you know, the papacy is widely known to have rich coffers. Yeah. I mean, you literally had the wealth of nations at your disposal since the Pope possesses the most powerful position in Europe and beyond at that time. Okay, um, Saying that, it was actually Pope Alexander who signed the papal bull, placing the demarcation line of conquests overseas yes, that's for right. both Spain and Portugal. That's right. um, that was in uh, 1493. It was actually more accurately called as the Intercaetera, or among other works. And bull, meaning bula, which is the leaden seal to officially sanction that, <laughs> that voyage. Right? So, yeah. So I hope you appreciate how this connects to our colonist friend Laureano de Torres <laughs> yeah. and his governorship of Cuba. <laughs> More importantly, however, a clear sign of corruption was Alexander's inclination for nepotism. Almost all his offspring had acquired high positions within his time and under his good graces. Case in point, Cesare. Right? So, it was no wonder that the Reformation and eventually the Counter-Reformation Wars precipitated from this point on. <laughs> so basically, basically everyone, uh, particularly the Protestants, were so sick and tired of the corruption of the Church that yet another war in Europe must be justified to find an alternative against something like a Borgia-controlled Church. It's true, yeah. Uh, and honestly, like, the controversy doesn't stop there, I think. So based on my <laughs> own reading, Pope Alexander VI, as he was known, he was... I think controversial is a nice way to put it. There's probably better words out there um, for, to describe him uh, based on the account. So he actually admitted to fathering several children by his mistresses. I remember what you said, Nico. He's pretty sacrilegious. It was also said that he bribed his way into the papacy. And he, was, he has been accused of simony or the buying and selling of ecclesiastical privileges. Kind of intense. And there's so much to say about the guy's career. He definitely made a lot of enemies who have not really written or spoken favorably about him. One particularly famous example is Julius II, the Pope who came right after him, who actually said, I will not live in the same rooms as the Borgias lived. He desecrated the Holy Church as none before. And incidentally, I guess the others followed in his footsteps, the Borgia apartments remained unused until the 19th century. So that's kind of a long time to be hating on one guy, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, so some other stuff though. But I mean, yeah, he, he's, got, he's got a pretty bad rep, but interestingly, I've found some pretty positive information about him as well. As Pope, he was responsible for a flourishing of the arts, having commissioned work from Raphael, Michelangelo, and Pinturicchio. He was also really tolerant of the Jews, who generally had a negative reputation in Europe at the time. 
after their expulsion from Spain in 1492 and Portugal in 1497, as well as Provence in 1498, he welcomed them into Rome, declaring that they were permitted to lead their life free from interference from Christians, to continue in their own rights, to gain wealth, and to enjoy many other privileges. Pretty tolerant for the head of the Catholic Church. What do you think, Nico, having discussed each of our sets of research on this guy? Where do we stand with Rodrigo Borgia? Deserve to be on the hit list? Not so much? What do you think? All right. So before we execute or accidentally execute an old person <laughs> this time, <laughs> last trivia for the day. In the game, he was assassinated in Rome by Ezio Aditore, the same guy who killed his son. Yeah. Right? But enough of that. About Rodrigo Borgia, yes, there are always two sides to a coin, you know. But sometimes one side it's it's much more faded than the other. Uh, it might be possible that the flourishing of the arts and declaring open city for the Jews may be part of his benevolent motives. But they may also be smoke and mirrors to curry favor from the populace and That's even true. the electorate. That's true. Like, or, yeah. or to get money, actually. I right. believe that the yeah. Jews he let in were pretty wealthy. <laughs> Fattening the already fat coffers of the papacy. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's a really good move. <laughs> How magnanimous. I know. <laughs> right. right. So, I mean, like the other assassination target, Laureano de Torres, and his hospital for lepers and progressing the tobacco industry, there is a good quote from one of the franchise's games to reflect on. And it goes like this. In order to build clean hospitals, one must acquire dirty money. Do you remember which game that was from? I believe it is one of the contemporary assassins. Okay. okay. It's either Lucy or one of the team. I forgot. I I might be wrong, but I I swear uh, I heard it in the game. It it sounds like something that would come from... If I had to guess, I would guess Syndicate, the Industrial Revolution one. That's that's, that's what I would guess because I think Florence Nightingale was there and stuff. But anyway, that's beside the point. (laughs) Go on, go on. Sorry. So, you know, if the accounts pertaining to the Borgias are to be believed, then yes, perhaps they deserve to be on the hit list. Mm -hmm. But then again... Who are we to judge? Indeed. Yeah, so actually very difficult to say uh, with regard to Rodrigo. Maybe I can ask you this, and I, I hope you don't mind me putting you on the spot. Uh-huh. If you had to choose between Rodrigo and Cesare, which one would be more likely to go on the list? I think it would be Cesare. Okay. Because I think that actions speak louder <laughs> than words. So cliche of me. True. <laughs> but I mean, he followed through with it. Yeah, yeah. We could say that, you know, perhaps they, they were actually in cahoots with each other. But the one who did the dirty work, and he can't say that he didn't have a choice. <laughs> he did. He had the money, he had the power. Yeah. Well, part of it was from the, the, the papal coffers, but still, he had a choice. Yeah, that's true. Right. That's true. He could have chosen to be a cardinal for the rest of his life. And that (laughs) probably wouldn't have been... I mean, he would have been allowed to if he forced it, I'm sure. Right. Or (laughs) or other secular uh, positions. Yeah, Yeah, right? (laughs) True. You're right. You're right. So to recap, we've concluded that some of the people in the Assassin's Creed hit list don't actually deserve to be there. Some of them do. And some of them are in that dubious position of 
they should die, but maybe not by assassination, perhaps something else. <laughs> and so for beasting, <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> beasting, allergy, that sort of thing. And the thing is, for anyone who questions if we might have done the wrong thing in reviewing the use of historical figures in the Assassin's Creed franchise, just remember half of the Assassin's Creed, everything is permitted. So thank you, Nico, for joining me on this episode. I hope you found it enjoyable. Oh, yes. It was quite a delight. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> nice. And before we go, I just thought I'd ask if you're aware of the European roots of the Assassin's Creed. Everything is permitted. Nothing is true. Oh, uh, right. The game actually reversed the order, saying nothing is true, everything is permitted, which was actually a... No, it's actually a direct quotation from the novel Naked Lunch by William Burroughs. Really? But, yeah, but yes, I'm also aware of its European roots, where the original quote was from the novel Alamut. Yeah. Uh, am, I, am I correct? Correct, correct, <laughs> yeah. Anything else that you happen to know about it? The, the novel or, or the author or anything? Oh, well, about Alamut, I think it was about this assassin leader named Hassan ibn Sabah. Uh, for, forgive the <laughs> pronunciation. But yeah. it was about nuancing the use of power or the purpose of power itself. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the theme of the, of the novel. And right. the reason why I bring up its European roots is because, as you mentioned, it is from Alamut, the novel, which of all the places it could have possibly come from, it is actually by a Slovenian author, which took me a little bit by surprise. Uh, huh. It was published in 1938. It was written by Vladimir Bartol a member of the Slovenian minority in Italy, and he conceived of the story while living in Paris. You can't get any more European than that, I think. <laughs> I, know. I, know. <laughs> right? I mean, it's all over Europe. <laughs> the, the only thing that's not European about it is the fact that it's the Alamut Fortress right. and the characters are not European. <laughs> Which, incidentally, it's also the castle in Prince of Persia, another Ubisoft game. Oh my gosh. Alamut, yes. <laughs> I, I did not even know that. <laughs> wow. And I, I'm glad that you're here to drop that, that gaming knowledge on, on, on us. Yeah. <laughs> so, I've, I've fallen down the rabbit hole. <laughs> it's fine. Sorry. It's fine. This, this is why you're the perfect guest for this episode. <laughs> so I hope you didn't mind that brief digression, but I couldn't talk about Assassin's Creed without mentioning that additional European connection. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have anything else that you wanted to add to that. Uh, uh, yes, the quote used by, as you've said, Vladimir Bartol yeah. is actually nothing is an absolute reality, all mm. is permitted. And uh -huh. the novel was actually, if we are to believe the rumors, yeah. it was dedicated to Benito Mussolini, wow. albeit sarcastically, um, because it was a novel questioning the use of power, particularly fascism at that time. So it was very appropriate, yeah. I'd say. Yeah, quite so, timely. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. So given the provenance of the Hashashins, here's a little something for fans of the game. Since I also found the Arabic translation of the Creed. Ooh, awesome! And yeah, Ezio Auditore said this during Assassin's Creed Revelations. Here goes: Lashaya hakikyun mutlak bal kulahum mumkin. So pardon the Arabic, but anyway. <laughs> We now know its real roots from the Slovenian novel, right? So what I wanted to say is that this just proves that Ubisoft has actually taken liberty of what we call as 
historical interpolation with many of its characters. Even with its famous creed, I guess nothing is true. Everything is permitted everything to open interpretation. <laughs> pun intended. Yes. <laughs> yes. But to those who actually played the hell out of this game, I hope you realize that it was very important to have those sequences when the assassin was able to converse with the soul of their Templar targets. I mean, this adds a deeper layer of nuancing to these characters and, see- and seeing their hidden motivations as depicted by the game. So if you've paid close attention to what they said, you'll also come to the conclusion that a balance must be struck between order and freedom. Because at the end of the day, freedom also exacts a price. And that price is vigilance. Yeah, it's true. Very wise. <laughs> Very wise. Uh, and on that note, I'd like to thank you, our audience, for joining us on this episode. I hope you found it entertaining as we talked about various things European and how they impact our lives. Thank you as well to Nico for the wonderful conversation. Remember to check out The Grand Pugilist on Facebook and YouTube, as well as social media. And to finish us off, I leave you with a quote from Altair, the original Assassin's Creed character. He said, we are what we choose to be. Cheers, everyone. And I'll catch you on the next episode of the Eurospeak podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the Eurospeak podcast. If you like what you heard, why not leave us a five-star review? And for more episodes, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you want to get in touch with us, our email address is contact.eurospeak at gmail.com. <laughs>